Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. Today, we're going to go over the hip pain and mobility deficit CPG, primarily focusing on hip osteoarthritis. This is another CPG that was revised recently, so just make sure you're looking at the most up-to-date one. First thing we're going to go over is the prevalence. Prevalence rates for adult hip OA range anywhere from 0.4 to 27%. Um, so there's a big range there. They aren't really able to pinpoint it. Um, it's higher in females than males. And men show a higher prevalence for radiographic hip OA, that, however, no difference in symptomatic hip OA between men and women. So what that tells us is that um, men are probably having hip pain and symptoms of this much longer without before they report it without seeking treatment. Women are probably seeking treatment for this a little bit sooner than men. The pathoanatomic features that they go over include cartilage deficits, bone marrow lesions in the anterior and central superior lateral regions of the joint, um, indicating early structural damage in the development of hip OA. Patients with hip OA also have less femoral head cartilage. And they mentioned that early articular changes observed on imaging may help identify these patients who have not been clinically diagnosed. I can't say I see that a lot in the clinic. I think most people who have had an x-ray to identify these articular changes have been diagnosed at least, you know, they'll say maybe slight, mild, moderate, severe, something of that nature, um, degenerative changes in the joint. There's some evidence to suggest that acetabular retroversion is related to the development of hip OA. And we talked about that. Some Alexis covered that in the non-arthritic hip, that those retroversion and antiversion positions of the femur and or the acetabulum could be contributing to some of those FAI type of diagnoses that could predispose someone to having hip OA. The clinical course is very variable. Um, they the American College of Rheumatology was unable to identify specific variables that predicted treatment for success. And that's primarily because there's a large list of independent variables, which they note as age, sex, body mass index, the duration of a patient's symptoms, their personal comorbidities, their treatment adherence, which is a big part, their baseline pain with activity or their baseline activity status, you know, how active are they, their baseline WOMAC score, um, their baseline hospital anxiety and depression scale score, and their baseline um, range of motion. So all of those things factor into how well someone does in their clinical course. Therefore, it's very difficult to identify. There is no consensus on a timing for surgery. And I think that many of us probably see this in the clinic. You know, the patients will come in and tell us, oh, the doctor said, just call them when I'm ready. Like, I'll know when I'm ready. And I think that's because they want people to manage as long as they can. And then when they can't, they kind of decide it's, you know, most of the time a hip replacement is an elective surgery, if that's the route it's going. And so they kind of want the patient to direct when they feel like they're ready for that. Risk factors. So they mention a few different things. Um, in our hip osteoarthritis, a lower range of hip internal rotation and hip flexion is associated with hip osteophytes, morning stiffness, male sex, higher BMI, and hip pain. 
Um, so you're looking, those are kind of your, if you have a male coming in with a higher BMI, complains of stiffness in the morning, and they have that limitation in internal rotation and flexion, you're probably going to be pointing at an osteoarthritis type of diagnosis. You may or may not know if they have osteophytes. If you have the imaging report and you can look over it, great. If you don't, you have no way of knowing that. The other thing they mention here too is living in a community with a high poverty level is independently associated with radiographic osteoarthritis in one or both hips. Low education attainment is independently associated with symptomatic osteoarthritis of one or both hips. So I think that's important to note, you know, when you're considering case studies and such regarding these types of diagnoses, those two factors are independent of any other personal factor that the patient may or may not present with. The natural history of hip OA is not really well understood, and that's, again, due to those many independent contributing factors. We do know, like Alexis talked about in the um, CPG regarding non-arthritic hip, that degenerative hip changes occur most rapidly in those with developmental dysplasia, cam deformities, um, your FAI-type diagnoses, and um, anyone who's had a history of a skiffy that slipped capital femoral epiphysis is going to run a risk of more early development of hip OA. So when you're taking your subjective history, just making note of a patient mentions any of those his history items that they've had previously with that hip, um, know that they probably could be having a hip OA issue. Diagnosis and classification. So these, again, are how your patient's going to present. How do we kind of try to classify them into this grouping of hip OA or mobility deficit in the hip? You're looking for adults over the age of 50 years old, moderate anterior lateral hip pain during weight-bearing activities, morning stiffness less than one hour in duration after waking, hip internal rotation range of motion less than 24 degrees, or internal rotation and hip flexion 15 degrees less than the non-painful side and or yeah. increased hip pain associated with passive hip internal rotation. One thing I think to note here is that they specifically mentioned the pain pattern is anterior lateral hip pain. And I think that's important um, not to say they can't ever have posterior hip pain when they have hip OA. Um, but if you're talking about classifying someone and developing a treatment plan, if their primary complaint is posterior hip pain, I would strongly encourage you to be doing a spine screening, you know, making sure that's not a referred pain from the lumbar spine or the start of a radiculopathy compared to hip OA. Um, most of your hip OAs are going to have more of that anterior lateral pain, which could also be spine pain. So that's where you have to really do your screening process and kind of use your rule in, rule out. Um, imaging studies. Oh, I will say in here, differential diagnosis, you can look at the CPG and look it over. It's really unremarkable regarding the differential diagnosis for this. Um, it got level F evidence based on expert opinion, but basically they're saying when the patient doesn't present with this set of symptoms, you need to look at other, other possible diagnoses. And that's really all they mention about it. Imaging for hip OA or hip mobility deficits. It's really plain film radiograph is the most common method used when diagnosing and assessing the progression. And radiographs are used to look at the amount of joint space narrowing and the presence of osteophytes and subchondral sclerosis or cysts. Um, I will say sometimes I've seen patients undergo an MRI or a CT 
before their surgery. And that's, I think, sometimes the surgeon's way of trying to better assess what prosthesis might be good for that patient or if they have other involvement or whatnot. If there are certain cystic changes, sometimes I think they use an MRI for better surgical planning. But most of the time, you're going to see a plain film x-ray. So that kind of covers the basis of HIPOA. The next thing we're going to get into is the examination. The first category in examination is outcome measures, activity limitations, self-report measures, those forms we always have the patient do before they come in. So they mention using, um, they classify it into pain and activity limitations and participation. So there's two kind of separate categories of patient-reported outcome measures to use. The ones to assess pain include the Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index, or the WOMAC, pain subscale, the BPI, or the Brief Pain Inventory, which I wasn't as familiar with that one. That one measures four dimensions of pain intensity, now average, worst, and least. Um, and basically, they use it to establish cutoff points of pain, cutoff points for pain levels, mild being one to four, moderate greater than four to six, severe is greater than six. Um, which is fine, but those are kind of large ranges. And for someone that has a chronic condition like hip OA, I'm not sure how much you're going to see that change over the course of four to six therapy visits, like between progress notes. You know, if someone comes in at a six and you get them down to a four, that's great, but they're still going to be in the same category according to that measure. They also, for pain assessment, mentioned using the pain pressure threshold, which is just, you know, how much pain, how much like pressure can they tolerate before you be you get that pain response and the visual analog scale which we're all very familiar with I think to get a better sense of the patient's self-reported activity limitations and particip participation restrictions they uh, they recommend using the Womack physical function subscale the hip disability and osteoarthritis outcome score or the HOOS the lower extremity functional scale and the hip hair Harris hip score. Um, I will tell you in this CPG, they don't go into a lot of detail on cutoff scores and the MCIDs. Um, I would strongly encourage you to look into those if you don't know them. They do a pretty good job of summarizing most of those in the other CPG for the hip. So that would be a good place to start looking at those. The next part we're going to go over in terms of examination are the activity limitations and physical performance measures. So what are we using to assess their performance when they come into our clinic? The first one they recommend using is the 30-second chair stand test. So this is just the number of full sit-to-stand repetitions the patient can complete in 30 seconds. I will tell you it's a well-studied, um, well-researched um, measure. They would say the minimum detectable change is 3.5. Um, so I think it's, there is research um, norms for that based on age and gender. Um, I think it's a good thing to know. It's a test I use a lot in the clinic. Um, I'm not sure how much HIPOA you're still seeing, Alexis, but is that one you use or did you use when you were seeing more of it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll occasionally still get it, but um, yeah, I've definitely used this one in the past for, for uh, people with HIPOA. I like it a lot, too, because I think it can give you a good assessment of not just their functional mobility, like sit to stand is something we all need to be able to do many times a day. Um, but I think it gives you a good idea of their power, the quality of movement. Are they using momentum? How strong are their quads? What's their initial balance like when they get up to standing? Um, so I think it, that's a simple, simple test that can give you a lot of good information. 
The next one they recommend using is the four square step test. So this is to assess how well a person can manage moving in different directions. So essentially you have them in a starting point. They take one step forward, one step laterally, one step backwards, and one step in the other direction laterally. Um, I think sometimes I've seen this used as an exercise with like a TheraBand around the ankles for strengthening. Um, Again, they have research norms. There is research norms and stuff on that test also. The next one is the step test. And essentially for this, you're just determining how many steps a person can complete while standing on the painful hip, assessing a participant's standing balance. So I think a lot of times when patients with hip OA, especially those moderate to severe cases, come into the clinic, they've been dealing with this for a long time. They start to get some of that secondary atrophy because they don't use that leg as much or they, you know, they lead with their non-painful side, especially when doing stairs. So I think this test can be very enlightening. Sometimes I don't think patients realize how much strength they've lost on that painful side just by not using it as much. Um, And I think that if you watch them do stairs, a lot of people with hip OA can't do a lot of stairs leading with that leg. So it can be fairly insightful and may help you point out functional limitations to the patient if they don't already identify that. The next one then they recommend using is the time single leg stance test. So just how it sounds, you're obviously in a safe environment. You're just having them stand on one leg. The other foot is flexed, so it's off the ground. Um, You're trying not to get them to stabilize with their foot, you know, kind of wrapped around their calf or anything. Just simply standing on one leg, holding it as long as possible. So that's something I think we're all probably pretty good about doing, um, even with patients not with hip OA. So just to review the tests to assess activity limitation and participation restrictions are the six, uh, the six minute walk test they mentioned, the 30 second chair stand test, the stair measure. They also say you can use a timed up and go, which I think is another really quick and easy test that gives you a lot of information, your single leg stance and your four square step test for balance. They recommend using the four square step test, the single leg stand test, and the Berg balance scale, another one that I think we're probably all pretty familiar with, um, but they recommend using it in this population specifically. So physical impairment measures, um, these are the things we're kind of assessing. So the first one is hip range of motion. Active and passive hip motion are measured in prone, supine, and sitting. You know, they go into a lot of detail in this CPG about what position to put it in if you want to use goniometry versus inclinometers um you know i think that's kind of up to you they call it bubble goniometry in here however you know it is fine i think they mentioned measuring internal rotation in prone and i think that's where when i do measure it that's most often where i measure it Um, i think you can also do it sitting so they go into a lot of detail about how to measure range of motion i don't think we need to go through an exhaustive list of that in here. But if you're unsure of the best way to be measuring certain positions, definitely refer back to the CPG. It'll go through it well for you. The next one they recommend measuring is hip muscle strength. You know, I hope this is something everybody who has hip OA patients is doing. Um, If not, you're kind of definitely missing the mark there. But the thing that they mention in here, again, they go through an exhaustive list of which position to measure it in, how to measure it, all of that. I don't think we need to go through that. What I would encourage you to do, though, when you're muscle testing is really make sure you're checking somebody through a range of motion. 
you know, sometimes these patients have dealt with this for a long time. They're good at compensating through their mid range that they use all the time, like their hip flexors. They're going to be good at using their hip flexors through that middle range that they use for walking. But when you're talking about using, using it past 90 to get up a stair or to do a curb step or something of that nature, you're probably going to see a weakness. So just make sure you're really testing them at multiple points in the range and giving them a good five second hold to really see how well they can tolerate a little bit more load, you know, not a quick run through. Obviously they mentioned in here, limited strength is associated with high levels of disability in patients with hip OA, which I think, you know, if you don't have strength surrounding a joint that's impaired with osteoarthritis, you're going to have more pain because they're not using those dynamic structures the way that they're intended to. And they're putting an increased reliance on the joint. Do you have anything to add on motion or strength, Alexis? Is that? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, like you said, they go pretty detailed in here on like the different positions and and how you can measure it and whatnot. But I think just understanding, um, you know, in general, I think they're giving you the best options for measuring these things. So just make sure you go through and understand all that. The last thing they they recommend measuring here, which I can't say I've really done in the clinic, is the pain pressure pain threshold. And they describe it as a measure of pressure or tenderness taken over the hip joint and in areas away from the hip joint. So I think essentially you're, um, they say that you place the rubber disc of the algomometer on the side of choice and apply pressure until the patient indicates the sensation of pressure has changed to pain. Um, and it gives you a measure in kilograms per square centimeter. I think, to be honest, I haven't done this lot in the clinic because I've never worked somewhere that's had the device to do this. It's one of those measures. Sure, document it. It's researched if you have the ability to do so. I'm not sure it's really going to change our, our treatment. Um, but just be aware of it because it, it may reappear on your test. So their recommendation for 2017 is when examining a patient with hip pain and hip osteoarthritis, you should document, be sure you're documenting at the bare minimum flexion, abduction, and external rotation or your favor test and passive hip range of motion and muscle strength, including internal rotation, external rotation, flexion, extension, abduction, and abduction. They do make a special note in here about best practice points. Um, I think this is important just to kind of summarize. They say clinicians should use the following measures at least at baseline and at one follow-up time point for all patients with hip OA to support standardization for quality improvement in clinical care and research. So they're saying to use the WOMAC. Then you're going to assess their six-minute walk test, 30-second chair stand test, timed up and go, and the stair measure. For your objective measures, they say range of motion and strength for all the six main motions of the hip. Um, the numeric pain rating scale, and for joint irritability, they recommend the favor test. So that's kind of a quick little summary of what the authors of this CPG feel are most important to improve clinical care and make sure you're covering all your bases with hip OA. Do you have anything to add on examination, Alexis, for your hip OA patients before we go into interventions? No, I mean, I think they do a pretty good job of noting these. And these are honestly popular tests that I use for a lot of different like balance, lower body things. So just knowing these tests really well is super beneficial um, for multiple populations. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't think a lot of the information in this CPG is new information to anyone who's studying for this test. But I just think it's one of those 
be conscious of how well you know those things because I think this is one of those areas. It's not a super complex diagnosis. We think we all know it really well. And then like a case study pops up about it and you could be second guessing yourself if you only have a vague understanding of like certain balance tests or certain certain strength measurements and that sort of a thing. So if you're unclear on any of those, either send us an email with questions or refer back to this CPG. So for interventions, um, it's interesting to me that they have this in here because it's sort of out of our scope of practice, but they talk about anti-inflammatory agents. And I think this is more for your internal knowledge as a therapist, not necessarily for you to educate the patient. Um, at least for us in Ohio, like recommendation of medications is not within our practice um, practice act. So just be careful. Um, but they say non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or the NSAIDs and the COX-2 inhibitors and steroid injections are effective treatments for relief of symptoms in patients with HIPOA. Some evidence suggests NSAIDs may increase the progression of HIPOA by decreasing glucosamine glycan synthesis. However, it's not conclusive data on that. Clinicians should be aware of the incidence of serious GI side effects associated with the use of oral NSAIDs. And I think that's the highlight here. We are not recommending to patients NSAIDs work, NSAIDs don't work, a steroid injection is going to work, a steroid injection isn't going to work. If a patient comes into you and they're taking eight to 10 Advil a day or you know, four to five Aleve a day, and they're also complaining of stomach issues, that's where you need to educate them. Oh, that's because of, you know, you need to go back to your doctor because it's not within your ability to say, oh, that's because your NSAID stopped taking that. I would encourage them, you know, hey, that sounds like you're taking more than what's recommended on the bottle of an over-the-counter medication. You should definitely follow up with your doctor. Um, but also, just for your awareness, if a patient comes in and they're taking all these NSAIDs and it's helping them, then maybe we need to consider some other, some other form of anti-inflammatory. Maybe they need a steroid injection instead of all of that oral anti-inflammatory. So just be aware of that, but be cautious how you're educating your patients on that information. The next section they talk about is alternative or complementary medication. Essentially, there's insufficient evidence to support the supplements, use of supplements such as glucosamine, chondroitin, and hydrolonic acid injectables, like injectable um, solution into the hip or similar substance for the treatment of hip OA. Um, they reference an article in here that no difference was noted after two years in joint space on radiographs or in the Womax physical function score for patients who had taken glucosamine daily for two years or a placebo. So, you know, I think patients ask us all the time about supplements, or at least I see it where I'm at. You, again, you really can't recommend or not recommend, but know for yourself that the research is not there to support glucosamine chondroitin type type use. The next part of interventions is patient education. This is pretty high. This is level B evidence. This is again, you know, where I think therapists can shine. They say clinicians should provide patient education combined with exercise and or manual therapy. Your education should include teaching activity modification, exercise, supporting weight reduction when overweight, and methods of unloading the arthritic joints. Um, one thing I think that's interesting is how they mention it in the 2017 recommendation versus um, the 2009 CPG. They recommend like weight loss strategies. And I think that their rewording of that to say supporting weight reduction when overweight is important because a lot of these patients already 
But like we said in other CPGs, you know, they're already nervous coming into therapy. They have this built up fear in their head that the only, some of them, that the only reason they have hip osteoarthritis is because they're overweight. Five other doctors before you have told them that. They're probably not people that exercise a lot anyway. So they have this fear that they're going to come to therapy and you're going to make them do all these exercises they may or may not be able to do. The last thing they need is a lecture about losing weight. Like they, they know. Okay. But what you can do to help that is say, you know, I'm sure the doctor has mentioned to you that losing weight's important. will help you have a better recovery. will help you feel better. My hope is to find, help you find some activities that you can do to be more active that cause you less pain. And that's where I think it comes in with, you know, supporting their weight reduction and unloading their joints helping them find different activities, teaching them the ways to modify the activities they enjoy to be able to be a little bit more active. A lot of these people feel like they're in the catch 22 where they go to the doctor and it's like, well, you need to exercise to lose weight. And they try to exercise and because their hippo is so bad, they're in pain, but they're maybe not a candidate for surgery because they're overweight. So they kind of fall in this cycle. So I think that's definitely something to be mindful of when you're doing education with these patients. Do you have anything to add on that, Alexis, in terms of patient education? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And I've seen that way too often when people are in that situation where they feel like they can't exercise because it hurts too bad, but they, you know, can't lose weight because they can't exercise. And so I think I agree with you. I definitely am never the person to bring it up, um, in that, especially in that situation. But I found that nine times out of 10, the patient brings it up. Like, I know I need to lose weight. So like, I kind of take that opportunity to, to delve into a little bit of, okay, so what is your plan for losing weight? And generally they, sometimes they're like, I don't, I don't know. I can't exercise. And so, you know, that's a good place where you can talk about other referrals. Like, well, have you tried talking to a dietitian or, you know, this, this gives you the opportunity to be the person to really sit down and help them problem solve. Because I feel like, unfortunately, a lot of physicians will just say, well, you need to lose weight. And some of them will give guidance, but some of them don't. And so I think explore that conversation with the patient just to help them figure out because you can really help them come up with a strategy that, you know, is going to give them a little hope. It's going to have buy-in. It builds rapport with them. So, you know, I kind of take that opportunity to explore that conversation and see what resources they need. I agree. And I think this is, I've definitely taken that approach a lot. And I think this is one of the fastest ways in this population that you can make a difference in their life, truly. I mean, they understand arthritis is something they have to manage and they're happy to see you to help get a little stronger and stuff. But if you can get them to the right people to make their overall life better, the instant gratification they have for you in those cases is it's immediate. You know I mean? They really appreciate that. And those patients, like Alexa said, are going to buy right into your treatment plan. They'll almost do anything for you at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. The next section they talk about is functional gait and balance training. Um, again, this is another section. It's really straightforward. I hope we're all doing functional training, gait training, and balance training in these pop in these patients. Um, basically, they say that you need to – the research is kind of nonspecific for this, we'll say. Same thing you'll see with the exercise category when we get to that. But you need to provide impairment-based functional gait and balance training including the proper use of assistive devices to help them. So sometimes in this population, they come in and they have such a bad gait, you know, such an antalgic gait and maybe a Trendelenburg and they're having all this pain. Sometimes in those patients, they're really hesitant to use an assistive device, but I'll encourage them, hey, just take it when you're going to your grandson's football game and you have to walk a mile from the car. 
you know, you don't have to use it around the house, but helping them, you know, prob- like Alexa said, problem solve, get through certain things, you know, educating them. And assistive device doesn't have to be all or nothing, but it can really help be one of those things that unloads their joint and lets them be a little bit more active, a little bit more comfortably. Um, in terms of specific activity recommendation for this, they don't recommend any specific balance um, or functional exercise. It needs to be patient specific and based on their specific impairments. The next section is manual therapy, which actually in this section two gets a very high level of evidence. In 2017, it gets a level A evidence. And I will tell you, they referenced probably a dozen articles regarding manual therapy for HIPOA in the CPG. Um, I'll mention a couple of them, but the general gist here is that you need to use manual therapy for patients with mild to moderate HIPOA impairment with impairment of joint mobility, flexibility, and our pain. They say manual therapy can include thrust, non-thrust, soft tissue mobilization, and the duration and dose can be anywhere from one to three times a week over six to 12 weeks. So again, what they essentially found in a lot of this research was there wasn't one standard procedure or technique that really helped these people. Um, I generally will tell you in the clinic, I do a lot of like lateral glides, like a belt assisted lateral glide or some long axis traction just to kind of open up that joint space. I'll also do like some mobilization with movement into internal external rotation while I'm giving that glide. And I think a lot of people have some good, at least temporary relief with that. And one study, it was a randomized control trial of 40 patients. They were trying to attest the effectiveness of a single session of mobilization with movement compared to a sham treatment on pain, hip range, motion, and function. Compared to the sham group, the mobilization with movement group had a decrease in pain, two out of 10 points, an increase in hip flexion by about 12 degrees, an internal rotation by about four degrees, and clinically significant improvement in the 40-meter self-paced walk test by 11.2 seconds. So I would encourage you at least try it with your HIPOA patients. Um, you know, if it doesn't work for that specific patient, okay, move on. But I think you would find a lot of patients do benefit from that. And you can see based on that study, I mean, they had four different measures that improved with one treatment. Again, a couple of these studies really emphasize the exercise and manual therapy cannot be standalone treatments. It really, they really need to go in conjunction. Um, you know, after you mobilize them and they get that, you know, they get a little bit of pain relief, their joint feels a little looser. You've noticed that you've gained a few degrees in flexion, internal rotation. You need to come up with some follow-up exercise for them to help maintain that and to use that fluidity of motion that you've just gained rather than letting them then sit in a chair and walk out the door. It's not, you're not going to get any carryover there. The Dutch, they reference in here a study that went over the Dutch CPG update for HIPOA, and they recommended adding manual therapy when hip joint mobility is limited, is limited as a preparation for exercise. So kind of exactly what I just said, if you're getting a good pain relief with that, add it in before your exercise, and I think your patients will tolerate some, some range of motion and strengthening exercises with less pain. You may find that they can strengthen through more range of motion, which would be great. The next section is flexibility, strengthening, and endurance exercises. Um, this is kind of the bulk of what we do as therapists. Of course, it has level A evidence for this population. Again, in the CPG specifically, they cite no less than probably seven or eight articles on this. And there was a wide variety of what they did and what they used as outcome measures. So if you're really interested, go through and read their like snippets of each um, article. 
but the general gist is that you need to use an individualized treatment plan for flexibility, strengthening, and endurance to address their range of motion, their specific muscle weaknesses, and their limited hip or thigh muscle flexibility. For group-based exercise programs, which I think are pretty common in large hospital systems or health systems for common diagnoses like osteoarthritis, the therapists that are in those programs, so if you're involved in that, you should really be making an effort to tailor the exercises to be the patient's most relevant impairments. Not everyone needs the same thing, even though they have the same diagnosis. I don't think that should be groundbreaking news to anybody. Um, for dosing and uh, duration, they recommend one to five times a week for six to 12 weeks. So again, a large variety. And I think that you see those large ranges for dosing and frequency because Really, when you're talking about classifying OA, I mean, typically a doctor or a radiologist is going to rate it as mild, moderate, severe. That's a huge range. You know, there's not a, necessarily a specific identifier to put someone in those categories. And sometimes their imaging doesn't match their symptoms or their clinical presentation. So I think you have to really make sure you're meeting the person where they are. If they're mild and their clinical presentation is maybe even less than that, you know, maybe once a week for six weeks enough. If someone's got moderate to severe and they have this extremely intelligent gait and need a cane and have no hip abduction strength, then maybe they need it three or four times a week for closer to 10 to 12 weeks. You have to use your clinical judgment there. For modalities, this is important to note because it's very different from the 2009 recommendation, but with level B evidence, they recommend using ultrasound, um, for five minutes each to the anterior lateral and posterior hip for a total of 10 treatments over a two-week period, in addition to exercise and hot packs in the short-term management of pain and activity limitation in individuals with hip osteoarthritis. Now, I mention this because it's level B evidence. You may see it again. I don't know. Um, I will be honest. I don't ever do this in the clinic because the, the frequency at which they recommend it is just not practical for most of us in the clinic. I mean, they're saying 10 treatments over a two-week period. That's seeing someone almost every day if there's a Monday through Friday course of care. If that makes, you know, if you work Monday through Friday, that's seeing them for two weeks for, um, you know, five minutes each. That's a 30 or I'm sorry, a 15 minute treatment of um, ultrasound. And then you're also supposed to put in exercise and hot pack. And I just don't think that's real practical for a lot of us for clinical practice, but be aware. The last thing in here, or sorry, second last thing they recommend is bracing. They mentioned bracing. Basically, though, clinicians should not be using bracing as a first line of treatment. They say maybe consider using it after exercise or manual therapy if those other interventions are unsuccessful. I can't say I see a lot of hip bracing. I do in post-surgicals, but other than that, I really don't see. I, hip braces are generally bulky and more uncomfortable than dealing with the hip osteoarthritis discomfort. So I think a lot of patients are turned off by them. The knee is a different story. I see a lot of bracing and I feel a lot of questions on bracing in the knee. I can't say that's true in the hip. Do you have anything on bracing in the hip, Alexis? Do you? I never see bracing okay. in the hip. Good. <laughs> so, <Okay>. no. <laughs> um, and then for weight loss, like we kind of already touched on this, but they say in addition to providing exercise interventions, clinicians should collaborate with physicians nutritionists or dietitians to support weight reduction in individuals with hip OA. And I think we kind of already covered that, 
you know, just know who your resources are and when it's an appropriate referral to get those patients the most optimum benefit. So that's really kind of it for the HIPOA mobility CPG. It's kind of quick and dirty. It's pretty straightforward. Um, but again, so is the diagnosis of HIPOA. Just don't underestimate it in terms of your knowledge with those specific tests and measures and that sort of thing. Do you have anything to add, Alexis? I don't think so. Um, you know, we talked about this a little bit beforehand that this was pretty straightforward. And I think there are a lot of different like tests and things that are mentioned in here. Um, and especially with the outcome measures that we talked a little bit more about in the previous HIP CPG. Um, and so you can obviously, when you're going through this, um, you know, reference back and, and make sure you know all the different like MCIDs and all that kind of stuff. Sure for those tests that they mentioned in here, even though they don't go into detail about it here. Sure. So, again, if you have any questions, cool. you can always send us an email at certifiedocspodcast at gmail.com. And I think that wraps it up for today. Yep. That's short and sweet. So um, yeah, we will talk to you next time.